Good morning, Cedar Mill, and happy 4th of July. My name is Dave. I am one of the pastors here. And before we get going today, I think it's worth saying that even though we do not live in a perfect country, there are so many blessings and opportunities that we enjoy as people who live in these United States of America. And so, God, we want to say thank you for this nation. Lord, help us not to worship her. Also, Lord, help us not to take her for granted. And mostly, Father, as we celebrate Independence Day, please help us to use the freedoms that we have been given as your people to bring honor and glory to you. We pray that as your church, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, today we are launching a new series called Lessons from the Lockdown. And this series was really the idea of Pastor Carl Palmer. And if you don't know who Pastor Carl is, he was the pastor here for 25 years, right before I showed up on the scene. And Carl is just someone who's so important to me personally. He's super important in the life of our church. And Carl was scheduled to preach several times over the next weeks. But regrettably, he had to decline because he's going through another round of chemotherapy. And so I bring that up, church, to encourage you to please pray for Pastor Carl and his wife Carolyn as they, they walk through this next, um, this next journey as they battle cancer. And Carl also wants me to reassure you that they are still grateful every day for God's grace in their lives. They are still fully and 100% trusting in him for whatever lies ahead. And so they have strength, they have hope, they have the peace and joy of having Jesus in their lives and they need your prayers um, right now. So please pray for the, for the Palmers. And like I said, this series was Carl's idea and in it, Lessons from the Lockdown, we are considering some things that God might want to teach us in response to what we have all faced together for this last year and a half. In this series, we're gonna ask, who does the gospel call us to be and how are the scriptures calling us to live in light of what has happened in our world? Do we take anything forward? Are we changed by God because of the circumstances that we've been through? And today I'm launching this series and I felt led to bring us back to the basics. Back when I was playing basketball in high school and college, often when our team would lo lose a game or even face some difficult adversity, our coach would take us back to the fundamental, fundamentals. We would get to practice and we would practice dribbling and, and passing and shooting layups and shooting free throws because our coach wanted to make sure that our game was firmly on the foundation of the basics, that we were stable in the things that mattered most. And friends, that's what I want to do with us today. I want us to get back to the basics of gospel living, to the fundamentals of what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. And there's no better place to do that really than in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna look at the first 12 verses today. And they are great words. This is Jesus talking to us about following him in the world. Here we go. We'll dive right in. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. Now when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, 
He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Right away, Matthew tells us a few important things. He tells us that Jesus sat down. And friends, when a rabbi sat down, that was a position of authority, kind of opposite of our world. In our world, when you have something important to say, often you will stand up to say it. But in in that world, in the ancient world, rabbis would sit. And they would sit as a way of saying, what I'm about to share with you is important. It's central. It's not something to take lightly. And so Jesus sits. And then in verse two, the ESV says, he opened his mouth and taught them. And that little phrase, he opened his mouth, was a way of saying in Greek, he poured out his heart to them. He told them things that were, that were near and dear to his soul. In our family, sometimes we will call a family meeting the team to share a house, we'd be like, get the kids upstairs. We generally have our family meetings in this little living room area right next to our kitchen. And when we call a family meeting and we all sit down together, our kids know that we are about to share something of importance and significance. Friends, in our passage today, Jesus is calling a family meeting and he's calling it with his disciples. We notice that in this passage, it starts with the crowd, but then it says his disciples came to him. Friends, all throughout the Gospels, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, there are two different groups of people. There are folks who are referred to as the crowd, and there are people who are referred to as disciples. There are people who come to just sort of check Jesus out, and then there are those who have committed their lives to following Jesus in this world. And so maybe a question right away, even before we get into the teaching, is this. What group are you in? Which group do you find yourself in today? Are you part of the crowd? Are you just checking Jesus out and trying to decide, you know, do I like what he says? Do I not like what he says? Do I surrender myself to it or not? Are you part of the crowd? Or or are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you decided whatever Jesus says, whatever Jesus teaches, he has authority in my life? Jesus says, if you are a disciple, this teaching is for you. And here is what a life following me looks like. Now he's going to launch into what we often call the B. Attitudes. Many of us have heard these verses before. I hope to shed some new light on them for you today. And the Beatitudes are really in two main sections. This is like a two-act play. Jesus talks about the kingdom life in two main chunks. He often does this. Remember when he was asked the greatest commandment? He says, there's two parts of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and part two, love your neighbor as yourself. He does something really similar here. There, in fact, are are 72 Greek words in the Beatitudes in this section of scripture. The first 36 words, act one, are about a kingdom attitude towards God. And the second 36 words, act two, are about a kingdom attitude towards others. What does it look like to relate to God as a follower of Christ and to others as a follower of Christ? Verse two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, 
Here comes act one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Greek, there are two words for poor. The first word is the word penes. It's a man who worked with his hands. This is This describes someone from the working class, a blue-collar worker of sorts. And if you were penace, you were moderately poor, but you were able to provide for yourself, but just barely. In fact, I'm sure Jesus' father Joseph was penace. He was part of the working poor. This is not the word Jesus uses here. He uses the other Greek word for poor, the word tokos. And tokos meant absolute and abject poverty. Tokos describes someone who is completely and utterly destitute. Friends, Jesus uses this strong language here to say, if you are someone who goes to God, not with the posture of, you know, I have a lot to offer you, Lord. I I got some pretty strong gifts. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good looking. I could really do some stuff for you, Lord. In your kingdom, I could help you out. If you're someone who doesn't go to God with that attitude in any way, but instead goes to God and says, I am completely and utterly destitute outside of your grace and mercy in my life. Jesus says, if that's your heart, if that's your posture towards the Lord, then blessed are you. Then there's good news for you. Next, Jesus talks about those who mourn. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Again, Jesus uses really strong language. In fact, the strongest possible word for mourn. It's not kind of sad. It's not a little disappointed. He uses the word that describes the kind of mourning you would experience when someone very close to you dies. He's talking about deep, heart-wrenching, I do not know if I can go on sort of mourning. And again, speaking with hyperbole, Jesus is trying to communicate that these are people who understand that there is a void deep down in their soul. He's talking about people with a longing and a deep sense of their own shortcomings before God. Jesus says, if that's you, if you sense your own fallenness and brokenness and sin and shortcoming, then there's good news for you in the kingdom if you'll follow me. Friends, don't you know that people, and don't you maybe experience this, that people who follow God most passionately most fully and most faithfully are also the people who are most aware of their own sin and brokenness. They're people who don't just talk about sin as if it's some theoretical thing, but but they understand the sin of their own lives because they have messed up and they desperately need the forgiveness of God. They desperately need a second chance. G.K. Chesterton Jet Chesterton summed it up with a little statement. He writes, what's wrong with the world is me. Jesus is talking about people who understand that. It's not just everyone else and everything else, but there's something about me that longs for and needs the grace of God. Next, Jesus says in verse five, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And there's a theme here. Jesus is building on the same theme because meek, is one of the hardest words to d- define in the entire list of the Beatitudes. 
But the Greeks, you know what they did? They were famous for defining a word by using its opposite. So they'd say, what does this word mean? Well, it's the opposite of this word. It would be like us saying, generous is the opposite of greedy. We're playing a little game here, so you can just answer out loud. Forgiveness is the opposite of revenge. That's right, you got it. Happy is the opposite of sad. Humble is the opposite of Arrogant, yeah, right. So the opposite helps you understand what the word means. And the word that the Greeks constantly contrasted meek with is a word that means lofty-heartedness. Meekness is opposite of lofty-heartedness. Meekness is opposite of pride and arrogance, a sense that I can do it by myself. That famous two-year-old phrase, like I can do it on my own. And so Jesus is saying here, in my kingdom, the heart posture of a follower of mine towards God is opposite of this. Someone who follows me will come to God with tremendous humility, with meekness, with a strong understanding that I can't do it on my own. Friends, one of the main critiques you will hear in this world of Christianity is that it is simply a crutch for people who cannot make it through this life in their own strength or on their own. And friends, that critique is 100% true. In fact, it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And then finally, Jesus sums up this first half, this act one of the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And again, he uses like the biggest, most like slap you in the face language he can think of. Hunger, the word means to literally be starving. Thirst, it means to eagerly long for water. I remember a few years ago, my wife Amy and I, we, we, we climbed Half Dome down in Yosemite. And we, we trained for this hike and we took this hike and we climbed all the way up the waterfalls and then all the way over to Half Dome and all up to the top it was amazing and then about halfway back down the hike was about I think like 12 hours or something it's a 12 hour hike like halfway down the hike so about a quarter of the hike left we ran out of water and I remember that feeling those last few miles of just thirsting and I remember getting to that first water spigot that we encountered along the trail and both of us just diving in and just gulping gulping down as much water as we possibly could that's the image that Jesus is drawing on here he says, blessed are those who are thirsting and eagerly longing for righteousness, for things to be right with God, for me to be right with God. See, that's the first half. That's, that's act one. That's the first 36 words of the Beatitudes. So think for a minute before we just move on about what Jesus has really been saying about what relating to God looks like. When you add all that up, when you put it all together, what does he say? Let me just read to you some of the words that he uses to describe a person's heart who's in right relationship with God. Poor, destitute, can't provide for yourself, has nothing at all. They mourn, they have deep sorrow, they have heart-wrenching anguish, they have intense pain and loss, they have meekness and humbleness and timidness, and they can't do it on their own, and they're hungry and they're starving and they're thirsty, and they have deep longing and suffering from lack of things being right. Do you understand that all those words fit together for Jesus to say, this is, this is your posture before God as someone who follows me. Now, some of you are thinking, well, if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, like that sounds pretty depressing. 
That sounds really, really low. That's not the kind of vibe I am going for. And so maybe I don't want the kingdom. But friends, before you decide this, let me, let me highlight something for you here. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. Because what he's saying is this. If that is your heart before the Lord, if you stand before God and you know that you are soberly lacking, if you live with this sense that you cannot get there, you cannot be righteous enough on your own, then, he says, then, and if you're willing to have this sort of humble, meek posture, then, he says, blessed are you. He says, if that's you, it's your lucky day because the kingdom of heaven is available to you. Righteousness with God is available to you in Christ. The most important word in this passage, and we must not miss it, is the word blessed. Blessed, we sometimes say blessed, but it just means to be blessed. It's used over and over and over again. Makeraos, makeraos is the Greek word, blessed. In Greek, it defines the happiness of the gods. Divine happiness, happiness that isn't fleeting, happiness that does not go away. Friends, Jesus is saying, if you deeply long for God, then you are longing for the right thing because no matter what this world brings to you, he offers consistent, deep, unchanging soul wrenching joy. If you're really longing for God, then you're longing for the right stuff. And so, and so let's just make this applicable. Here's the first lesson from the lockdown. If your soul's blessedness is tethered to the things of this world, things that can come and go as easily and as quickly as COVID, then you're in trouble. Is that where your blessedness is tethered to the things of this world? Or, or are the blessings of your life tethered to the immovable God? Do you relate to God as if he is everything that you need? Or do you look to the world as the primary source of your blessing? Or do you look to God? You see, the lockdown has revealed for so many of us that our blessedness, that the real feeling and sense of joy and blessing in our lives is actually more tethered to the things of this world than perhaps we were willing to admit. Because all of a sudden when things go away, we realize how much we were depending on them. Friends, a kingdom attitude towards God longs for something more than this world can offer. And now Jesus will talk about a kingdom attitude towards others. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In Greco-Roman society, mercy was, was not a good thing. It was a sign of weakness. In fact, the, the Romans did not admire mercy at all. The Romans, they admired justice and revenge and vengeance. They admired discipline and power and strength. Mercy, mercy was for losers. Mercy was for the defeated people. Mercy was for the weak in fact, some Greco-Roman philosophers who wrote at the very same time that the New Testament was being written said this. This is a quote. Mercy is a disease of the soul. And the word mercy is actually a compound word. It's two Greek words that together describe this. Listen, this is a definition of mercy. Getting inside a person's skin and experiencing life, suffering, and hardship from their perspective. 
Friends, Jesus says, hear this, that's how kingdom people relate to others. They get inside a person's skin and experience life, suffering, and hardship from their perspective. How much does our world need people who will do this right now? How lacking in our culture is mercy? How much mercy do we need in our political pandemic climate these days? I would say maybe, maybe we don't need anything more desperately than mercy. And yet, Christians are being pulled away from mercy. During this lockdown, during this season of sort of social unrest, I've seen so many Christians pulled away from a life of mercy. I've seen so many Christians who are more concerned about being understood than trying to understand. And yet Jesus says, when you get back to basics, at the very core, the very fundamental level of what it means to follow him, it's this call to be a person of mercy. A person who gets inside another's skin to try and experience life, suffering, and hardship from their perspective. It's a very central part of walking with Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This word pure, it's a word in that culture that described wheat that had been like sifted of and cleansed of its chaff, that little outer shell that kind of goes around the wheat. And so when you talked about being pure of heart, that was to be someone whose, whose motives had been cleansed of any kind of chaff. Someone who did nice things for other people without the hope of getting something in return, without the sort of motivation of like getting paid back at some point down the road. And again, in the Roman culture, this was not considered a, a wise or savvy kind of behavior. They didn't think that was a real good thing. In fact, they celebrated helping people who could help you in return. They, they sort of celebrated helping people who could advance you and move your reputation forward. They celebrated looking good in front of others. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have been sifted free of all that selfish need for recognition. Just, it's been like peeled out of their lives. Friends, in our world today, in our world of, of posts and reposts and likes and thumbs up, it seems that almost every good thing we do gets put on display for others to recognize. Has anyone else noticed this? I've, I've never seen it more than during the pandemic, and yet Jesus seems to say something so fundamental about following him. He says, my recognition and my affirmation is all that you really need. You've got all of it that you can handle because you've got it from the God of the universe. In other words, you don't have to go searching for it from other people to be satisfied. You don't need people to like your post and to think that you're so moral and you know, righteous and upstanding by putting it out there for all to see. You don't have to do it. You don't need the approval of others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. No chaff. There's no mixed motives in us. Blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, now, in our world, peace has a real thin, and I would say sort of shallow meaning. It often 
simply means the absence of conflict. But in the Bible, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is, is something enormous. Peace, peace is robust. Peace is about things being at peace, things being right. Peace is about perfect harmony, the harmony God intends for us to have, about people relating to one another justly and righteously. That's peace. That's biblical peace. So peacemakers in the scriptures are not people who avoid conflict, but people who step into conflict. Peacemakers are not people who sweep issues under the rug or avoid them, but people who pull them out into the light so that things can be dealt with and redeemed and restored in a way that makes things right before God. Friends, do you understand what this means? When we're called to be, as followers of Jesus, peacemakers, we are called to step into, not away from hard issues. We are called to engage uncomfortable subjects with meekness, with humility, without any chaff, but to step in nonetheless. And friends, I would argue that this is not something you can do from a distance. This is not something you can just do on the internet. This is, to be a peacemaker means you have to get face to face with people so that peace, real peace, justice, shalom, that's the Bible word, shalom can move forward in this world. To be a peacemaker is to be a person who brings shalom, godly harmony. To be a peacemaker is to be one who helps things be the way God intends for them to be. To be a peacemaker is to be someone who brings unity around rightness or righteousness. And friends, if you think that you can be a peacemaker and avoid ridicule and critique and persecution in your own life, if you, you can just be a peacemaker and not have any conflict, well, then, then you're mistaken. And Jesus actually has some words for you on that. Listen to how he sums up the Beatitudes. He sums up these seven amazing verses with these words. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you think that you're gonna be able to engage and be this person and relate to God this way and relate to others this way and not be ridiculed and not face persecution, then you're wrong. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus seems to say here is, is that if you live this beatitude life, if you embody the kingdom in the way you live, then there's gonna be some hard things that come your way. Now I need to pause here and just say something because people use these verses out of context all the time. They use these verses to sort of justify things in their lives all the time. And you know what they say? If you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. So don't get conned. When Jesus says, persecuted because of righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness he has just defined in the previous seven verses. Jesus 
is not saying when you go out and you like, you know, you spread your self-righteous Christian moralism all over the world and people don't like it, then you can just say, well, I'm persecuted because of righteousness. I'm persecuted because I'm standing up for truth. No, 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 he's not saying that. He's saying when you apply the Beatitudes to your life and then persecution comes, then blessed are you. Jesus is saying when you are so poor in spirit and mournful and meek before God, that others see that and they ridicule you and they don't understand it and they persecute you because of that, rejoice and be glad. He's saying, when you are so merciful that people think it's ridiculous or so unself-promoting that others take advantage of you or so willing to dive into conflict in order to bring shalom that the world says that's foolish, that's not savvy, that is not how you get ahead in this culture, Friends, when you live out the Beatitudes in such a way that persecution comes, great is your reward in heaven. That's what Jesus says here. And so friends, this is our calling at the very core, basic level to be these kinds of people, to relate with God in this way so that we can relate with others in this way. And so here's the question. How can we possibly do it? How can we possibly be these, these kinds of people in this world? Because I don't know about you, but I could do this if it weren't for people, if it weren't for others, if it weren't for messed up, broken people who frustrate me and anger me and annoy me and bother me. If those people weren't around, I could live this way. But these people, they rub up against my life and, and then it brings other stuff out of me that Jesus doesn't talk about in the Beatitudes. It's hard to live this way because people in our world are hard. But Jesus says, friends, the kingdom of God has come into the world and it's been offered to us. You see, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is not, all right, now get out there, Christians, and try really, really hard to live this way. Try really, really hard to be poor in spirit and mournful and meek and merciful. Like, do your best to be pure in heart. No, 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 no. The Sermon on the Mount, in this sermon, Jesus is saying, Hey, followers of mine, let me tell you what the kingdom of God and the good news of salvation will produce in your heart. This is what, this is what I will create in you. He's not saying try really hard to be this person on your own, but instead let the good news so saturate your soul that it produces these things in you. See, the key is letting the gospel inform our minds and hearts and lives and attitudes and actions and words. Let me give you a great picture here. Last week, our, our family went off to a lake. We met my brother and his kids and my parents. We hadn't been together since, since the beginning of COVID. And so it was great to see my nieces and my nephews. And while we're at this lake, my dad rented a boat for three days. So we have this boat and now we're able to do all the fun things, right? Go tubing, go wakeboarding, go water skiing, all the fun things. It was great to see my kids do this. Um, you know, my brother's kids, so fun. And there's something that's just so joyful. I don't know, maybe you, for me, there's something so joyful about standing on the water on water skis or on a wakeboard and just sort of soaring over the surface of the water, just cruising along. It's so, so fun and peaceful and just brings so much joy to my heart. And yet, here's the truth. No matter who you are, no matter how talented, athletic, you know, savvy or smart, it does not matter who you are, you cannot no matter how hard you try, 
put on water skis and get into the water and then paddle so fast that you pop up and that you can ski by your own strength. That, that's just not going to happen. Can't happen. Impossible. The only way that you can get up on a wakeboard or on water skis in a lake is to let the boat in front of you pull you up. Yeah, now you have to work with the boat. You have to position your body in the right way and cooperate with the boat. But your main job as a skier or as a wakeboarder, your main and primary job is simply this, hold on. And so the question today, friends, is are you holding on to Jesus? Are you holding on to the one that can, that can pull you up? Are you surrendering and cooperating with the Holy Spirit in a way that pulls your life up towards being the person he calls and longs for you to be, towards being that merciful, meek, peacemaker person? And friends, if your answer to that is like mine, sometimes, sometimes I'm, I'm holding on to God, I, I'm gripping the rope of the Holy Spirit in my life and I'm allowing the Spirit to help me look like this person Jesus described sometimes and then sometimes not. If you're like me and your answer is, I am doing it sometimes, then there's a gift that God's given us. It's the gift of this meal. It's this meal that says, if your life has started to, to drift away and if you've started to live by your own strength and your own ideas, Jesus says, Come back to me. Come back to relying on me. Come back to my, my ideas, not your ideas. And he invites you back in this meal. And friends, it's 4th of July. This is a meal about freedom. It's about, it's about the freedom from the power of sin in you and freedom from, of the power in sin in me. It's the freedom that was won when Jesus died on the cross. You see, this is a meal about how we could not and cannot do this life the way God wants us to do it on our own. But when Jesus died and went to that tomb and took on death and emerged victorious on the third day, he won the victory over sin and death for us. See, this meal is a way of declaring, of remembering and then declaring declaring to this world, declaring to the dark forces of this world, declaring to our own sinfulness and brokenness, declaring to our souls that the grace of God is offered to us and the blessing of God is given for us and the power of God is working in us so that we can have the blessed life that Jesus speaks of. So right now we're gonna do that. We're gonna declare where it is we find the strength to be the people that God longs for us to be, to live out these beatitudes in the way God longs for us to in the world. So if you have your elements, grab them. I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start with the bread. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you, you and me. Take me.
says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, like you need this reminder all the time. You need to make this declaration constantly and consistently. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that he is the power and the strength for us to fight the sin that we experience in this world. The blood of Christ, take and drink. Let's pray, church. Father, we confess that we often just move away from the basics of what it means to be your followers, that we get sucked into the world's attitudes and responses and postures and ways of relating to you and other people, God. We're just, we just get contaminated by that stuff, God. And so it's good to go back to your word. Thank you for your word that brings us back and reminds us of what it looks like to really be your people, to walk in step with you, to yield to and surrender to your Holy Spirit at work in us. I pray, Lord, that that as a church, we would continue to be people who more and more look like you, who more and more embody these beatitudes in our lives, not because we try so hard or because we're so good, but because you are so at work in us. Help us to stay connected to you, Father. Help us to hold on to the rope of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Continue to have your way with us. That's our prayer. That's our desire. That's our hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.